how do we market ourselves in a way which is authentic to who we are? There are lots of fund managers, many of whom are really great at their job. But then the question is, how do you tell that story? Who do you tell that story to? And how do you create a narrative that they can get enrolled in? Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Dan Kimmerling, the founder and managing partner of Desiance Capital, a leading fintech venture capital fund. Let's dive in. Dan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much, Justin. It's great to be here. Yeah, your journey with being founder, investor, having both sides of the table here is a unique one and like a lot of insights to glean from this. I want to set the stage, though. So today... Desians, where are you investing for people who aren't familiar with Desians? Uh, just take us through a little bit of that, just like where you're investing, where your focus is, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, I mean, I think the core thing that we do in Desians is partner with a small number of entrepreneurial teams that are building the next generation of financial services. We've been doing that now for five or so years. You know, we tend to operate geographically agnostically. You know, home is North America, so we do a lot of work in North America, but not exclusively. And when we get involved, we really get involved. So I think a big part of what we do is we try and stack hands with entrepreneurs and form real partnerships. You know, this, the last five years, uh, I did the math for this recently. Over (laughs) the last five years, we've seen on average 900 deals a year. And in the last five years, we've done on average 3.6 deals per year. And so I think the thing for us is when we form a partnership, we want it to be a fulsome partnership. Um, uh, And so that's, I think, the short version of what we're up to. Yeah. To that, I mean, with founders hearing this, obviously investors, if they're new, maybe don't understand that totally, but we see it at Vitalize. We obviously see so many deals, same type of thing. We only invest in a few of them. That's just the dynamics of that. For you, your firm, what are you looking for? What gets a founder to the point of investment? One of those 3.6 per year. Like, Just take me through a little bit more how you, how you view it because everyone's a little bit different, but I'm just curious on your perspective on what helps founders get through that to get to actual investment for you. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some hard criteria And then there are some soft criteria. I think the hard criteria is financial services or fintech, you know, kind of whatever you, however you describe that. Seed financing, although seed is itself a a range, you know, if you're kind of like raising an angel round or you're at series A and beyond, it's probably not a great fit for us. We want to lead the financings. Um, we're the lead investor in the vast, vast, vast majority of the companies we invest in. So if you have a lead or, you know, that may not be a great fit. So yeah. there's some hard criteria. And then I think there are some soft criteria, you know, I, I, and I'll, I'll go back to the soft criteria in a second. And then I think the final piece of it is timing. And I hate to say that, but we're a small team. We have six people on the Desians team. And so I think oftentimes companies that meet the hard criteria and the soft criteria, but the timing is off, sometimes that doesn't work. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, um, the last deal we did, I think I've known about the company and been tracking the opportunity for something like five years. Jeez. (laughs) But then like the timing was right and we were able to move quickly. And so 
I, I hate to say that, but a lot of life is timing in a number of dimensions. Uh, and so I think to really, uh, to answer your question specifically, to get Decian's to yes, hard criteria, soft criteria, and timing. You know, on the soft criteria, I think it comes back to our belief that the best companies in the context of a venture capital outcome, not the best objectively, but the best within our context yeah. of four major criteria. One, they have increasing returns to scale. So as they get bigger, they get better for one or more reasons. Second, they have to have ever-deepening moats. You tend to see these uh, number of businesses that get better as they get bigger, but they struggle to maintain margins, to capture that value. Um, and so you want to make sure that as you get more scale, the moat around your castle is deeper. There are more crocodiles, you know, um, the drawbridges, you know, there are more drawbridges, you know, you get the idea. Yeah. And then I think the third thing is we really believe in this idea of a winner take all or winner take most market. We think that in most markets, the number one winner will probably accrue 80 to 90% of the volume. The second winner will accrue 10 to 20% of the volume. And the third through however many accrue peanuts. And so then the question is, are you going to be the winner in a winner-take-all market? And if it's not a winner-take-all market, how do you make it one and uh, capture the lion's share of the value? And then I think the fourth is just operating in a market that's very large, right? If you if you schlep, you know, from New Jersey, if you schlep through the first and the second and the third, but the market is tiny, you've done all this bullshit, but yeah. it's like, man... The juice is not worth the squeeze. You know, as we would say, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And so, you know, that's the fourth one. So with that too, you mentioned leading rounds. That Was that always from the beginning, like, okay, because of this philosophy, like what we believe in, in terms of we're going to take all markets, that's what we're going to invest in. We need to lead rounds, have significant ownership stake. Like, does that kind of go hand in hand from the beginning of how, when you started Decians, this is what we wanted? Yeah, I mean, I think... um, I joked that, well, so there was a, a couple of years where I was an angel investor. Yep. And, and when I was doing angel investing, I, I was not leading rounds. But when I got serious about it, now this is uh, five, five and a half, six years ago. When I got serious about it, when we started managing other people's money, when I went full time on it, yeah, that's really when um, it became clear to me that, uh, unfortunately, it's just, it's really unfortunate, but you can't partner with everybody. You can only, as I said, like, you know, we partner with three to four new teams per year. Yeah. And so when you're going to partner with a, uh, a company in a very intimate and familial and, and interconnected fashion, and I'm going to put the future of Dessians in the hands of entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs are going to put the future of their businesses in our hands, you have to lead. Like, you, you just, it would never work for us to do what we do and, and not win. Yeah. No, I love that. Cause everyone has their own philosophy, which is great. And <laughs> their own way of going about it and talking to so many different fund managers. It's interesting to see the different approaches people take. And even us at Vitalize, the same thing. Like we are not the opposite, but we definitely don't lead that many rounds. Uh, so a little bit different take on that, but there's many ways to go about it. One thing that you mentioned there though, like, okay, Desians five years or so, it's been around. You were angel investing before then. 
take me through that transition. Your angel investing going to launching a fund because a lot of people are thinking about that. I'm curious for you what that looks like making that transition. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, um, I think I did it for reasons that, in retrospect, were were good reasons. I was insanely passionate about partnering with entrepreneurs and supporting them and their journey, and being a coach, being an advocate, being a dot partner, being a collaborator. And so, when I became like obsessed with the question of how do I do that more? How do I, that? How does that become my day job? How do I do that with yeah. all of my productive uh, energies? That's when I, I really wanted to go and, and start Desians full time. On the other hand, I think that that part of the job is really only a third of the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, another third is working with our capital partners. And we have incredible capital partners, and I'm very thankful for their their partnership uh, with us. But that was a part of the job that I didn't have a, honestly, I didn't have a fucking clue about. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of the last five years has been really building knowledge, connectivity, relationships with limited partners and the institutional capital ecosystem. Okay, we gotta we gotta dive in deeper into that because I yeah. know there's gonna be people thinking about that too, right? Like, yeah, for sure. And then I, there's a third portion of it, right? Like, if if the first I really got, uh, the second I didn't really get it all. The third is running like a a non-trivial business, it's, uh, right? We have now six people. Uh, you know, we operate. Uh, we're SEC registered as an exempt reporting advisor, so. And we're an audited financial institution. And so there's a lot of work we do behind the scenes in terms of just making sure, you know, that that all the things that have to get done, get done in order to keep the lights on. Right. And it's like uh, we just had an incredible new uh, colleague join us yesterday. It's the 30th of August. So uh, we, we had this colleague join us yesterday on the 29th. And just kind of like last week, it was like ADP and making sure the paperwork got done and getting her, getting her a computer and right. Like all the little things that have to happen when you're running a business. And so that's probably the final third. It's funny you mentioned that too, because most people, especially starting funds don't always realize that or getting into venture don't realize that from the GP perspective, like all the things that go into it. It's like, yeah, the fun stuff you see in the surface of like working with founders and everything, but then raising capital to have those funds in the first place and then actually running a company like your founders of a firm. It's the same type of thing and all the back end stuff. And it's funny like seeing that from working with Gail at Vitalize. It's like, yeah, I see all the stuff she has to deal with too. And on the back end of it, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, changing payroll and then like all these other like operational things. You're like, that's not the fun stuff at all. <laughs> like, it's not the founder stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh... <laughs> Often, like my day can be filled with like calls with lawyers and accountants, and you know, like um, <laughs> it, it, it's great. And we have an incredible team, and, and uh, we work with an army of service providers that really make Desians work. Um, and I'm very thankful for their support. But I think if you have a perspective of venture that's shaped by something like Silicon Valley on HBO. I think then that's a very stylized view of what we do. Yeah. And going back to what I mentioned, so you're angel investing and then you're like, all right, well, I want to go deeper on this. What does, what does that look like? Let's do this as like an actual day job full time. 
then you realize, well, it's raising a fund, right? Like these, this whole institutions and working with them and raising that. Take me through raising funds for you. I mean, you've raised a couple funds already, but like take me through that process. Cause I think other, whether it be emerging managers, other people raising who uh, are going through that process always can learn from others. Just take me through how that went for you, how you approached it and maybe how you even, even progressed over time getting better at that. Yeah, so I think the thing to think about, okay, so there are a lot of funds out there, <laughs> a lot. And even within that, there are a lot of really good ones. And so then the question is, what is it that you as a fund or fund manager are bringing to the ecosystem that is differentiative and value creating? So that would be like, what is the product? And, and how do you validate that your product is good? And then the question is, how do you market or sell that product when there are tons of other people trying to market and sell other products? And so I've learned so much about this in the last five years. Um, I think what I would say, like, maybe the best thing that I've come to appreciate is there's a certain kind of enterprise sales approach to it and like uh you know we have our existing lps and in some ways they're a lot like if, if you've ever sold enterprise software or familiar with enterprise software you need to engage in customer success you really want to keep your existing clients happy here you want them to come back you want them to be proud to be part of your ecosystem so that's like one aspect of the work you, you acquire an LP, they're in fund one, you're going for your next fund. How do you make sure that they feel good? And a lot of that is your reporting, your marketing, uh, et cetera. And then there's the question of how do you build a prospect list and how do you qualify a candidate LP? And how do you um, think about how do they do their job? And it's extremely complicated, and um, I'm very thankful that we have uh, on our team uh, a venture partner who's just focused on the topic, and that's been a huge evolution. Um, I think the other thing I've really come to appreciate is that there's this idea, there's this crude metaphor of steak and sizzle. Um, are you familiar with this metaphor, yeah, Justin? Yeah, yeah you yeah. are? Okay. So for, for the audience, it's like you can have the world's best meal. It can taste incredible. But if it's not appealing, it won't sell. Yeah. And I think when I got into this business uh, five or so years ago, I was all about making a fucking great product. Yep. But then I, I was less focused on how do we make the great product appealing and so i think a lot of the question that we've that i've struggled with at destians is really a question of how do we market ourselves in a way which is authentic to who we are there are, are lots of fund managers many of whom are really great at their job but then the question is how do you tell that story who do you tell that story to and how do you create a narrative that they can get enrolled in and so we've done a lot, a lot, a lot of work on what does Desian stand for? What is unique in the ecosystem about what we do so that we can have the world's best steak and it fucking sizzle too. For you, to that point then, what, did, what are some of those things with Desians that 
you're, you know, you're pitching LPs, et cetera. You're like, all right, we are destined. This is why we're good. Like take me through some of that and how you think about that. Because I think everyone's always thinking about that too. I haven't talked to Gail with Austin to other venture firms as well. We're like, okay, well, what is it for us? And like, how do we tweak that right way? What is, you know, says it in the best possible light for Destians and for you, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I sort of think about it on three layers. There's what are our goals? What are our strategies? And what are the tactics we use to achieve those strategies? And when you're, trying to find an LP, you want an LP who has goal alignment, strategy alignment, and tactic alignment. If you are, as a manager, if you only have alignment on one or two of those three things, it's highly unlikely that they'll be a good long-term partner. And, and you know, I think for, for us at Decians, we start with what is the goal? Our goal is to be one of the very best as measured by returns. We are an extremely return-oriented firm. And I say that because I think any firm can actually choose three different things to care about. Not all firms care about returns as measured by carry. I think a lot of firms actually are in the business of aggrandizing the ego of the partners. Um, I think a lot of firms are in the business of generating fee income for the partners. Yeah. You know, Destines, we've done a lot to really orient ourselves to be focused on the carry, to be carry obsessed. And if at the end of the day, there are many things you could say about us, the number one thing I want people to say about Destines is we get, we're really focused on our performance above all else. And so from a goal perspective, that pushes us to be very, even within venture capital, venture capital is a, generally speaking, risk-oriented asset class. Yeah. I want us to be known as very risk-seeking within a broadly risk-seeking peer group. You know, the name Decians means in Latin 10 times, and that's our aspirational goal. Not that we will always hit that goal. We will often fall short of returning $10 of capital for every one that's entrusted to us. But every time we say the name, every time we pitch the story, every piece of marketing collateral, it's on them, reminding us why we're in this business. There's a couple of things you mentioned there I'm, I'm curious about too, actually. So one was the venture partner focused on like the fundraising aspect. And I'm guessing that's like relationship building, pipeline building. Take me through more of what that looks like. I'm curious about that because maybe the first time I've heard that, even though people probably already have it, of course, but when did they come in the picture? What does that role look like? Because that's a smart strategic thing to do. I'm just curious on how that came about. So in the last five years, I've discerned that I have very little control about the ratio of LPs that I meet to LPs of saying yes. We track this. Historically, for every 20 LPs that I'm introduced to, 19 will say no. <laughs> and so that leads to, I think, two conclusions. We need to continuously be focused on filling the top of our funnel or and or we need those to say that say yes to write more substantive checks. Yeah. And so um, 
you know, just a lot of things we do, including having a venture partner focused on capital partnerships and capital formation, are all about helping us, one, fill the funnel, and then two, over time, trying to bend the yes to no ratio. Increasing your conversion rate. Increasing the conversion rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you understand, like, this is why I've started to use a kind of enterprise sales, enterprise absolutely. success metaphor for the problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, obviously talked to our team on different things as well. And you can understand, like, what, who's spending time and what, and you get the problem right away. Like, oh, yeah, the top of funnel is a huge part of it. But then obviously, if you increase everything else, it helps on the fundraising thing as well. And from talking to these different uh, VCs as well, the process of that is important. And if, if I may. You have to have a great product. The world's best investor relations or capital raising infrastructure will not help you if your product sucks. (laughs) Yeah. And and so, right, like in enterprise software, product engineering and design have to be partnered with sales, marketing, and success. And in a, generally speaking, an enterprise sales-related organization, they both have to be great. If you have really strong product engineering and design and really successful sales marketing and success, then you've created like a virtuous cycle that um, can really enable a powerful, you know, a, a powerful organization to kind of blossom. One thing too, like, which think about your story, people who aren't familiar, you, I mean, early on worked at TechCrunch early on had a couple companies went through YC like you've had this experience of founder operator etc how does that influence you today in terms of how you view things and you already mentioned kind of what you how you view the world a little bit at Destians but with that experience as founder operator how does that influence how you work with founders today view the world today I'm curious I, I mean it 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 influences it in many different ways many many different ways you know I think. I'm not the first person to say this, but I want to create the venture firm that I wanted to have when I was an operator. Yeah. Um, And it's not that we didn't have great venture investors. We had incredible investors and I'm very thankful for them and their support, you know, at various times in my entrepreneurial journey. But I never felt a hundred percent like, they were exactly what I wanted or needed at any given time. And so a lot of what Destiny's is and um, how we operate is built on that. I also think, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I moved to Silicon Valley in 2007. And so, and, and I lived there for, for many years, decade and a half or so. Yeah. And so over that time, I think I was able to see some common failure patterns and success patterns. You know, some of the firms you look at that continually are able to produce exceptional outcomes, uh, the benchmarks and union square ventures and IAs of the world, they tend to be smaller. They tend to be more intimate. Um, They tend to be more, personality-driven, they're more artisanal and less uh, institutional. It's not to say that the institutional firms aren't incredible, 
but I think they have a different role to play in the ecosystem. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I just read another piece on Union Square Ventures recently, and like to that exact point, like they were like Fred Wilson, him like blogging for such a long time, not going crazy with fun size as opposed to some other options. Like there is a very strategic approach and very intentional on, on their part for everything they do. And there's, as you mentioned, kind of many ways to go about this in terms of building, which is also why, again, why I love interviewing because I'm curious. How Justin, if I may, there's a common failure pattern, which is that you get too big too quick. Hmm. I think, and there's a, a another common failure pattern, and this is one I'm particularly attuned to, which is broadly speaking the following. You have to create an environment where investors can make controversial investments. Um, Bill, Bill Gurley said it better than anybody. So I'll just quote Bill. You have to be non-consensus and correct to make money in venture capital. Okay, so that's like the, the fundamental premise. That and venture's power law distributed, right? Power law distributed, non-consensus and correct. Those are like the iron laws of venture capital. <laughs> but then if you create an organizational model, like where for a variety of reasons or no reason, it's impossible for investors to make controversial investments or they're not incentivized to make controversial investments, or even more perniciously, they're incentivized to do consensus investments, mm. then I think you've really moved away from trying to capture the power law, from trying to do controversial investments. And so when we think about fund size, team structure, how decisions are made, et cetera, et cetera, we're always conscious that what we want to do is create the condition of possibility for controversy. Because that's what I think uh, puts us in a position where we can do some of these things which look crazy and hopefully turn out to be, uh, in retrospect, genius. <laughs> <laughs> to that point then, Dan, this is where we're going to get into anyways. A couple of your investments. I'm just curious about. Um, and like Nick Tareha, we had on the podcast from Sidecar. Take me through. We'll start with that one. I want to talk about them and then shipper cash for sure, but maybe one more if we have time. I'll start with, with Sidecar. Take me through, find that investment, uh, thoughts on that, why ultimately pull the trigger? Because like, as you mentioned, you're only investing in three or four companies per year. Just take me through Sidecar. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I think um, if your audience isn't familiar with Sidecar, mm -hmm. I think a good way to think about Sidecar is they are a completely automated end-to-end product for the creation of special purpose vehicles, what are known also as by SPBs, which are a kind of legal tool, which are kind of the atomic unit of transaction in private market investments. Yep. Um, and so I had met, actually, I think I was introduced to Nick and, and his co-founder, David, David, through two different ways. Now that I think about it, through two of my different LPs, through Aaron and through the guys at Zag, um, Ray and, and Dan. So uh, through some of our LPs um, who had heard about it. And the thing that really convinced me, uh, so I, over the last number of years, I've done lots of SPVs and I've created them and yeah. I, I've, I've experienced um, how much 
brain damaged they are. <laughs> They're just a lot, a lot, a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work to do. Uh, very burdensome. And so, um, you know, I, I acutely felt the pain. And so that that's one dimension of it, of course. But then I think Nick and David, they came to the table really articulating this idea that it is only through standardization that the private markets will see scale. Right now, most private market transactions occur on a kind of um, bespoke basis, right? It's like, uh, and it's heavily lawyered, heavily negotiated, bespoke. Yeah. Um, and I think Nick and, and David really articulate this idea of a highly standardized process as the mechanism to unlock both dramatic cost savings, but also create an opportunity for a new generation of deal organizers, part-time, full-time, professional, amateur, venture, and other asset classes. Um, and I kind of remember uh, my grandparents getting into the stock market in the 80s. And it's like, well, eventually people are going to get into doing privates. Like they had gotten it, you know. And, and so as the democratization of privates expands, that's an interesting opportunity. Another thing I've studied over the years is the development of what you would call tool chains. And so tool chains are the set of tools that professionals use. So like in designers, the tool chain is a lot of things that tend to be Adobe products like Photoshop, Illustrator. In the stock market, it's Bloomberg. In um, coding, it's like a GitHub. In, in, in the legal profession, it would be things like LexisNexis, right? In an industry, people become standardized on a very small number of tools. And those tools yeah. tend to dominate that specific industry. Another one would be uh, like TurboTax in the accounting industry. And so uh, kind of a, a big thing that we've thought about a lot at Sidecar is making a Sidecar and the way that Sidecar does what it does, the standard for SPVs and deal organizers in the private markets. It's an interesting company. I want to make sure we talk about Chipper Cash though, because you- Okay, I know you mentioned like when they raise it around and you mentioned on November 2nd, I had this tweet up. Uh, and one of the things you were saying was like, I'm going to take a second to talk about Chipper Cash. Great. Uh, super lucky to leave the seed round in the company in May of 2019. Pre-revenue, 7,000 users. I can't remember if it was 5,000 or 7,000 on something that, sure. whatever. Yeah, and from that, you mentioned like, you could tell that the founders were stars. First thing I was curious about with that is, how could you tell the founders were stars? Because every founder is like, oh, I want to be a star. I, I want to be that great. How do I know if I'm that great? Whatever. What was it about those founders? Let's start with that. I'm curious about what it was with those founders that you were like, yes, those are stars. So uh, star being a star founder is actually, now that you say that, I, I think in retrospect, it's actually not very helpful to say that. Sorry, David. <laughs> uh, no, no. It's, um, I think what you're looking for are people that have a couple of different personality traits. One is they're deeply intrinsically motivated, right? In general, people can be motivated intrinsically or extrinsically. 
internal or external motivations. And uh, starting startup sucks. It's fucking terrible. It's it's like it's got a, it's insanely painful way to make yeah. a living. Yeah. And there will be like days, weeks, months, quarters, and years where it's not working. We're just off the fucking rails all the time. Um, and and uh, Reed Hoffman has this great line where like there's going to be fires and then there are forest fires and you have to figure out which are going to burn down your house and which you can just let keep burning and will put themselves out. Right. Like, and so you're looking for people for whom they're scared or they're, they're reasonably concerned, but uh, they can manage that. And the like mission, the goal, the ambition is so deep in who they are that the fact that like their friends are going to get married and have kids and work at prestigious jobs and buy homes isn't going to bother them. They're like willing to just suffer more for the mission, the, the cause. So you're looking for like people who are have insane levels of fortitude, resiliency, and are deeply intrinsically motivated. And so, and, and what you're, what you're looking for are people that say those things. But of course, every founder has now been trained to say those things. What you're really looking for are a track record of behavior that actually is that. Yeah. And so, you know, like this is not my example, but you look at it. It is an empirically known fact that immigrants are way over indexed amongst founders than the general population. And I think there are some, a number of reasons for that, but one would be, these are people who've already left their homeland to come to a new country to seek a better future for themselves and their family. And so if you're willing to leave everything, you know, move around the world, et cetera, et cetera, those are historically good people to bet on. And so when we talk about Hamster and Jokey and, and Major, the, the co-founder, CEO, and president, respectively, of Chipper Cash, you know, these are, these are two incredible humans who moved halfway around the world that first applied for and got scholarships to come to the United States for college from Ghana and Uganda, respectively. So that's that's like right there. That's a major move, right? Like a lot of people never apply. A lot of people never are accepted. A lot of people, right? Like clearly they are trying to better themselves. Yeah. And and then, you know, the, the guys have talked a little bit about their professional journey, but like these are people that didn't have deep networks in the United States and uh, overcame seemingly very long odds to become professionally successful at a young age. And then we're, we're willing to give that up to go build something very important uh, in Africa for their families and, and the family, you know, there are approximately 1.3 billion people in Africa for uh, across 54 countries. And so um, for the, that ecosystem, and you just watch them execute, and it's just, it's awe-inspiring. 
And so when you talk about star founders, to be fair, some of it is timing, but you're looking for people who like, I don't joke, it's true, are willing to chew glass and learn to like the taste of their own blood to accomplish whatever it is is necessary to make a great company. And then even that may not be enough. As we've worked with plenty of great founders where the timing isn't ideal. With that too, how did, so if this is a company that ends up being, you know, the most valuable startup in Africa and you led that, that seed round, how did that, how did you find them again in the first place? Well, and I also led the series A, so I did Yeah, both. the next round too. Um, <laughs> um, again, through, through one of our LPs. Uh, who, who referred it to me for sure. And I think that's really, I, I've used this word ecosystem a couple times, and that's really what we think about when we think about building Dessians. At Dessians, we are really like a big community or ecosystem. There are different parts of that community, right? There are LPs. We've talked about some of those. We've talked about some of our founders. But really, we're trying to build a very balanced ecosystem where both parts of that ecosystem reinforce and strengthen the other obviously it's been helpful <laughs> so working so far it looks like with what you've been doing companies have been able to get access to and there's tons more we could talk about on time for but as we kind of wrap things up here i'm just curious as to like what's next for you so you've raised a few funds already um just curious on what's next what are you excited about next uh what's happening for Dessians? anything you want to add there before we close things i think the thing is i am and continue to be obsessed with what I'd call craftsmanship. Mm. I think that we want to be fucking great at what we do by the measures that we give a shit about. Yeah. And I think that maybe we could be a lot bigger than we are. I'm not sure, but maybe we could be. Maybe we could be lots of things but we are we are committed to being great and that requires a level of commitment to craft and dedication and focus and execution uh which i think is very it's atypical i i suspect in today's ecosystem uh you, you know um i i feel like quoting steve jobs is very um cliche we're going for it <laughs> But but Steve had this great quote, which I I'll, I'll I'll ruin it slightly. But it's something to the effect of strategy is what you say no to, right? Like there are many 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 things we could do, but then the question is not what can we do, but what should we do, and we should only do things which improve the likelihood of us accomplishing our goals, which are to be really fucking good as measured by the metrics that we care about. And anything which does not advance that, it's a distraction. Dan, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you for founders to reach out to Desians? At Desians.com, we have an open submission form. Please, you know, that comes right to my inbox, my team's inbox, so feel free. Twitter, at the Kimmerling. Um, I assume you you can put a link to my absolutely uh, at, at Desians on Twitter, um, LinkedIn. We're we're active on the internet. You know the internet's awesome, so we're active <laughs> on it. But, um, 
you know, we travel a lot. We come to, we go to a lot of conferences. Um, the next big conference we'll be at is Money 2020 in, in Vegas in October. So if any of your listeners and, and want to reach out, we'd be happy to see them. I believe we're hosting a happy hour there. Um, but generally, the internet is the best place to find us. <laughs> I think people will be able to do just that. Dan, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Of course, Justin. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.